Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. BRICS and other developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance on the global stage, while consumption and interconnectedness both increase. Laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every Thursday, we take a bite-sized look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of our international guests. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finances, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. For many people, Puerto Rico evokes images of a Caribbean vacation, and more recently, the ravages of Hurricane Maria and a critical economic situation that led to the imposition by the federal government of a fiscal control board. Until not that long ago, however, the island was a vibrant manufacturing destination, attracting big names from the U.S., especially from the pharma sector. The success of Puerto Rico's industrial sector allowed its per capita income to grow tenfold from 1950 to 1980. Much of the success was due to tax breaks that allowed U.S. companies to avoid paying corporate income taxes on their Puerto Rico source profits. Starting in the 90s, however, those breaks started to be phased out giving way to a protracted economic downturn. The fading of Puerto Rico's star coincided with Asia's, and particularly China's, rise. As manufacturing shifted eastward, one would have been forgiven for thinking that Puerto Rico's days as an industrial powerhouse were gone forever. But increasing discontent with China, to put it mildly, coupled with the rude awakening Americans have experienced as COVID-19 lays bare the inadequacies of its supply chain, may be conspiring to give Puerto Rico another chance. With us today to explore why that may be the case is Dr. Jose Raul Perales. Jose Raul is the Deputy Director of the Global Alliance for Trade Facilitation, as well as the Director for Trade at the Center for International Private Enterprise. He is also an adjunct professor at George Washington University, my co-host Jonathan's alma mater, and was an Assistant Secretary of Homeland Security from 2014 to 2016. Most importantly, he is a fellow alumnus of the University of Michigan and was my former teacher at that institution. He is joining us today from Washington, D.C. Jose Raul, welcome. Thanks for having me. Raul, could you please give us a little overview on Puerto Rico's status within the U.S. and internationally? I think that a lot of people, even who consider themselves internationalists like me, see we see Puerto Rico in the news and we, we're we not sure what's going on or why it's going on there. Can you, can you please give us some context to this? Absolutely. Uh, Puerto Rico is what is referred to as, uh, technically speaking, as an unincorporated territory of the United States, meaning that Puerto Rico, for legal international terms and sovereignty terms, is a part of the United States. Uh, but in terms of American jurisprudence, uh, the way that it's been described is that, it, according to federal law precedent, is that it belongs to but is not a part of the United States, meaning that Puerto Rico, for legal and constitutive purposes, is U.S. territory, 
but because citizenship and a variety of other rights were conferred to the island as part of an acquisition process and the island is not incorporated, it means that it has special status within, uh, within the United States. So, for example, Puerto Rico has a separate, separate fiscal regime, uh, meaning that Puerto Ricans do not pay uh, federal income tax, but do pay a local income tax on their, on, on their salaries. Uh, Puerto Ricans can move freely within the United States, but cannot vote for the president of the United States when they are in Puerto Rico. It also means that Puerto Rico does not have uh, voting representation in the Congress of the United States. That said, uh, the United States is responsible for Puerto Rico's uh, international presence, meaning its customs treatment, investment regimes, uh, sanitary, phytosanitary, anything pertaining to trade, uh, international affairs, defense, uh, and most of the regulatory matters that govern the United States also have, uh, there is a jurisdiction over Puerto Rico. It bears to say, of course, that because the United States is a federal country, uh, the particular brand of American federalism means that states have a regulatory capacity over a wide variety of areas like services, for example, where uh, in the case of Puerto Rico, because of the political relationship with the United States as a commonwealth, uh, local authorities has been, have been able to exercise a tremendous amount of leeway and, and, and flex their muscles. And so this is why uh, the governance mechanism of Puerto Rico has been able to make the island have the best of both worlds. And in fact, one of the political parties in the island um, uh, used that as a motto, right? That we're the best of both worlds because it's the federal system, but with a local flavor allowed for by the federal system of the United States. As we mentioned in the introduction, Puerto Rico has had a long history uh, as a manufacturing destination dating back to the to the 40s and 50s. But uh, in the same way that there is a lot of confusion regarding Puerto Rico's status within the U.S., I think this is also something that is not as well known uh, as one perhaps would expect it to be. Can you tell us uh, about this um, recent past that the island had as a manufacturing powerhouse? Absolutely. Um The origins of Puerto Rico manufacturing go back to uh, right before World War II. Uh, and, and it's hard for people to, to, to realize that before World War II or around the time of World War II, Puerto Rico was the poorest jurisdiction in the Americas. It was even poorer than Haiti in, in per capita terms. I mean, poverty was, was, I mean, it was, it was disease, uh, lack of social mobility services. It was, it was, it was a terrible, terrible time. Um, uh, and, When the origins of Puerto Rico's manufacturing um, time or, or its, its ability to become a manufacturing powerhouse rested in the in the ideologies of a group of Puerto Rican politicians in the 30s, namely led by Luis Muñoz Marín and a variety of other um, people ascribed to the um, to, to his uh, what he created at that time, the, the, the Popular Democratic Party. And the belief at the time was that this party was meant to develop a more uh, a new type of relationship with the United States, keeping in mind that Puerto Rico had been a, a Spanish territory for most of its history, and defining itself related to the United States uh, as, a, as a colony, which it, is what it was at the time, uh, was definitely considered a, 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 something that, 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 the, that, that the island had to move beyond from without really uh, 
curtailing their relationship with the United States. And so the idea that uh, Munoz Marin and a variety of other politicians espoused at the time, which, by the way, was very popular in, in most among most political scientists and economists, is that you could not fully exercise your political rights, that you could not fully resolve the political situation or definition of a territory like Puerto Rico that was so poor and so stricken without first tending to people's needs. And to tend to people's needs, you needed to provide a way for people to actually Um, In economist terms, we call it change the terms of trade of Puerto Rico, right? That you had to move beyond the production of two or three basic staples and that the island definitely had to uh, modernize and and industrialize. And the belief also was that the responsibility of industrialization of Puerto Rico was a matter of the state, right? That it was the government that had to provide the engine for development. Again, keeping in mind that many of these ideas were tremendously popular in Latin America at the at the time, but also in many parts of the world. I mean, the state as an agent of development. Uh, in fact, in many parts of Latin America, these these ideals later became something called developmentalism in Brazil and Argentina. And keeping in mind that in Puerto Rico, because of the limited cap- capital circulating across the island, as I said, it was extremely poor. The entirety of the operation for modernizing Puerto Rico's economy and industrializing had to be developed from the state. So. In tandem with the development of the Commonwealth status that Puerto Rico has, there was, it, that came hand in hand with an economic project, right, to turn Puerto Rico into a manufacturing powerhouse that could make viable a new political relationship with the United States, according to the beliefs of the time. This coincided later, I mean, as matters developed, with the end of, the, the, of World War II and, of course, the beginning of the Cold War. And the fear that poverty and inequality in Latin America would usher in a communism or or or, or abrupt changes of government uh, lead, leading towards socialism or movements of the left. And so from the perspective of the U.S. government, it also became a matter of interest to the American uh, to the American government that Puerto Rico became more economically developed. And of course, they worked hand in hand with the leadership of Puerto Rico and developing the kinds of not only political arrangements, but also the economic arrangements that led to Puerto Rico being an attractive destination for manufacturing. Like most developing places, this started uh, with the manufacturing of basic consumer goods, so canned goods. This is why Puerto Rico, until even the 2000s, had a, a, a tuna canning industry, because again, food production is usually where manufacturing starts taking place. Uh, apparel production was also very uh, prevalent at the time, at least when the very first stages. But the stages of industrialization of Puerto Rico moved very rapidly. And this alludes to something you said earlier, Fred, that uh, you know how quickly Puerto Rico's GDP per capita rose and the point at which Puerto Rico became one of the wealthiest places in, in, in the continent per capita had to do with the fact that First of all, there were there was manufacturing competition. Puerto Rico is a small island, and so there were other jurisdictions that were competing uh, for, for for manufacturing. But also, the fact that Puerto Rico was an overpopulated territory, and so the idea of maintaining a certain productive base limited to certain amount of consumer goods would not be enough to propel the economy forward the way that um, that circumstances demanded and that opportunity presented itself. So Puerto Rico went very quickly through various stages of this industrial uh, production, all of them propelled by state-sponsored mechanisms of for both attracting investment and for stimulating specific sectors, right? So 
again, like many industrial policies in, around the world, Puerto Rico uh, used its fiscal autonomy as, as allowed by the Commonwealth status, and as I alluded to earlier, to introduce fiscal incentives to attract global manufacturing to come to Puerto Rico. Why? Because it became very clear to political leaders in Puerto Rico that manufacturing was not going to be uh, something that Puerto Rico did for Puerto Ricans alone, but that Puerto Rico had to be an export platform. Right? And that brought in the, the, uh, the, the, the export-led model of uh, economic development to the entire Caribbean region. Actually, Puerto Rico was the first export platform uh, island in the region, and it was fo soon followed by Jamaica, um, Dominican Republic, and others. And then the other aspect of it was that the government actually did have a role in picking winners and losers. Why? Because if the government had such an important role in mobilizing investment, it also had to mobilize the kinds of human resources, services, and things uh, that would go to support that industry. And so this is how in the 1970s, for example, the government made a huge bet on the petrochemical industry and developed uh, you know, refineries and plants uh, in different parts of Puerto Rico. Timing was bad. It coincided with the oil crisis of 1973, and so that industry didn't go very far. Uh, but again, the choice, for example, later on for pharmaceuticals, again, all of these in very developmental style uh, approaches where the state uh, basically puts forward a vision of what sectors the island ought to be, uh, ought to be pursuing has been prevalent since those very early times. In the 80s, it was the, the, the bet that was made was for, for, for pharmaceutical industries. And today, uh, while there is less interest or less uh, uh, leadership from government authorities with respect to what sectors the economy ought to be focusing on, the, there's less emphasis on the quote-unquote model uh, uh, for economic development, there are certain sectors that, because of the characteristics of the island, uh, are favored uh, locally. The island has been moving more towards the service economy. So any kind of services linked to manufacturing or manufacturing services have received a tremendous impetus from the state, but always this tight relationship between the types of fiscal incentives that are produced and the role the state has in picking winners and losers. Uh, let's pivot for a minute to COVID-19 because we're all living that day to day now. Uh, COVID-19 has really bared the U.S.'s dependency on China for its pharmaceutical supply chain. And uh, from, uh, Puerto Rico has experience in the pharma sector. Uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, China fatigue now in terms of national security and IP theft and rising costs of doing business there. Uh, and at the same time, we see the need to boost Puerto Rico's economy. Do you see this scenario as a bit of a perfect storm for Puerto Rico to be rejuvenated as a manufacturing center? Uh, I think there is room. There is definitely room to, to consider things. Uh, let me just say... From, from, let me just start by saying that, we, if, if, if anything, COVID-19 is really forcing people to rethink what they mean by global supply chains or by what they mean by supply chains in general. Uh, not, not only on the pharmaceutical and the medical equipment uh, side of things, but also in a variety of other, of other sectors. So definitely there are uh, incentives for people to rethink uh, location, um, domestic incentives uh, for manufacturing, so on and so forth. You know, when Puerto Rico began deindustrializing, uh, and by that, what I mean by that is the exodus of certain kinds of industries away from the island and the more focused specialization on, 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 on pharmaceuticals, et cetera, 
in part because the growth of Puerto Rico made it uh, an expensive destination to produce the type of low-cost manufacturing that places like Mexico or even China would do. So, for example, before the, the rise of China, NAFTA was already hitting Puerto Rico hard because Puerto Rico simply could not, salaries in Puerto Rico could not compete with Mexican salaries or uh, plant or, or access, market access for things like apparel and, and, and textile production. So in that sense, uh, Puerto Rico had, ha, had always had that challenge, but in a time when, uh, when we're looking at questions of national security, access, standards, things that, are, that, that where, where governments are going to be taking a hard look at where they locate their production, I would say that, yes, there are certainly incentives for locating uh, things in Puerto Rico. The question, the, the question here is, is to think about what sectors seem to be the more suitable uh, for, for, for Puerto Rico to both be an attractive destination for investment, but also for uh, politicians to look at what gives the best value. Uh, higher value and uh, added products, again, because as you were pointing out, Puerto Rico does have a formidable pharmaceutical and biomedical industry uh, apparatus seem uh, more logical. But keep in mind that Puerto Rico's pharmaceutical industry is dependent on the importation of inputs for production of these goods. So the extent to which, you know, it, it is, it is, it, it, it's somewhat of a consideration to think about Puerto Rico as a des- an ideal location destination if you can find a way of fixing your supply chain issues uh, before you locate the manufacturing in Puerto Rico, right? And, and that is already happening. So definitely there is a, an opportunity here. And this is where for savvy uh, politicians and, 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 and experts uh, in Puerto Rico to think about how you pitch the island in comparison to other places that have similar circumstances like Singapore or Ireland, uh, but that have a better, but that Puerto Rico can have a better uh, access to secure supply chains to produce this kind of manufacturing under a U.S. jurisdiction. Similarly, with other kinds of services, as I said earlier, that are support this kind of manufacturing. Um, that that uh, just again where 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 our our, our economy is headed, um, and um, and again we will see a resurgence in manufacturing. Puerto Rico still enjoys a, a minimum wage differential with the United States which is a highly controversial proposition these days. It's uh, considering the, the, the fact that Puerto Rico's per capita income still is half of the poorest state of the United States. There are pressures on the one hand to, uh, to raise the minimum wage in Puerto Rico to make it a more attractive destination even for Puerto Ricans to come back to the island and work uh, and to reduce uh, economic inequality. At the same time, that differential makes it attractive, makes Puerto Rico an attractive investment destination for U.S. manufacturers seeking to bring back those supply chains to the United States, but who want to keep uh, production uh, salaries uh, or, or so the, the, the human capital factor uh, um, control some of that cost. I should also bear, it also bears saying that some of those decisions about manufacturing are affected by a variety of other things where Puerto Rico has recently had challenges that are being tackled, but it is a long road and it's an ambitious road. For example, Puerto Rico has very high energy costs in comparison to, certainly in comparison to other jurisdictions in the United States, not so much in terms of the Caribbean. So the kilowatt hour cost of producing uh, energy in Puerto Rico is, is uh, nearly double what it is in the state of Florida, for example. Again, in the, it's, it's very expensive to produce energy anywhere in the Caribbean. And so that has been acting as a hindrance to certain kinds of manufacturing to take place in Puerto Rico, especially the manufacturing that relies on on on, 
uh, uh, cheaper energy, but also uh, consistent and reliable energy provision. Uh, transport costs are also an issue uh, for, for manufacturing in Puerto Rico, especially if you're looking at high volume transport or bulk transport of goods. Uh, considering that there are restrictions as to what kind of ships can sail between or to, for, to move goods between Puerto Rico and the United States on account of the Jones Act. And so it, 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 altogether, it's about what kind of package you put together, right? But it isn't just a matter of breaking those supply chains of Puerto Rico having a manufacturing advantage because it's a lower cost destination. It's that some of those indirect costs also impinge on the ability of the island to be a successful um, to emerge successfully as a manufacturing destination during the COVID crisis. So mindful of these challenges that, that you described, what are some of the industries that you see as potentially finding Puerto Rico attractive? Um, to mention ju just one and to, and to kick off that discussion, I, I recently read an article about what's happening in the aviation sector. And even though I had been hearing about that for some time, that article actually went into, into some detail. And I have to admit that I was somewhat surprised to, to, to see the, the stats that, that we're, we're talking about in terms of jobs, in terms of, of the number of companies that are, that are being created. So uh, again, mindful of the challenges and also looking to, to attract those higher value added uh, industries. Do you have any Uh, thoughts on, on which industries might might be good bets? You know, it's a very interesting point that you raise about aviation, because uh, if you think about it, the, the, the rise of aviation, and this is goes to the policy suggestion, right, or the question you're asking, it, the, the rise of this aviation sector in Puerto Rico is the result of a mix between old ideas and new responses. There's something in the mindset of Puerto Rican politicians that is embedded in it like, 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 like it's, it's almost in their DNA to believe that Puerto Rico is a bridge between the Americas. It's this idea that Puerto Rico's geographic location and the fact that it straddles two cultures, straddles two political relationships, straddles a variety of lanes, that Puerto Rico is a natural nexus and a natural connection. And so it, 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 that has translated itself into a variety of ideas for Puerto Rico, uh, for Puerto Rico's economic development. In the past, when I was working in the government of Puerto Rico, for example, one thing that I proposed very strongly that the island could consider was, for example, uh, developing uh, competitive advantages in matters of sanitary, phytosanitary uh, uh, certifications and those kinds of things for food business, for agribusiness. Why? Because most countries were aspiring to have U.S. kind of regulations for food, food and agricultural production in the continent. But to have that in Spanish and have that in the context of tropical laboratories was very difficult for them to, to absorb. And Puerto Rico had a natural advantage to do that. And again, it's that mindset of, of, of straddling those, uh, those, two, uh, those two, 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 two lanes. And so the question for Puerto Rican politicians and for, for, for the private sector is how do you turn that idea or that identity into something very smart? Uh, again, as I said, the, uh, the, 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 that idea that occurred to me uh, some time ago about sanitary and laboratory testing and all those kinds of things. But in the case of aviation, what's happening now is that uh, you have a, a bunch of people who've realized that with the growing uh, changes in air, aircraft manufacturing, it is actually very possible for Puerto Rico 
to not necessarily be a hub for transportation, but you can actually bring airplanes to have them serviced in Puerto Rico because it turns out that for most of the narrow range airplanes uh, or narrow uh, body airplanes being produced by both Airbus and Boeing, uh, Puerto Rico is conveniently located within distance from both manufacturing centers so that these planes can fly to Puerto Rico for service. The service for these airplanes ideally is done in a, in a warm latitude because it allows for some of the bolts to, uh, to be more solid, solidly installed in airplanes. Uh, and uh, people made an actual bet that this could work. And that was the, 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 the idea of attracting this, uh, this, the, the, this industry to come to the island. So again, playing to those kinds of advantages that Puerto Rico has. Yes, it has a strategic location, but what does that mean in terms of of, of specific sectors, right? So maybe aviation is not necessarily, uh, I mean, aviation services is one part of it, maybe not the entire manufacturing aspect of, of aviation. And so my my one of the big areas where I think Puerto Rico can have a tremendous impact is precisely this issue of industry services. What kind of services the island can provide for manufacturing uh, or other big industries that find economies of scale elsewhere. The service industry, given technological advances, does not care about physical location as much as manufacturing itself for the simple reason, as I said, of economies of scale. But you can establish a, a variety of supportive services uh, from, from Puerto Rico and become a hub for those services in a variety of, of, of ways. And I think that actually can, and, and again, all of those things are connected to manufacturing. So you can use many of the manufacturing incentives that have been produced both by local poli- by, 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 by the local government, but also at the federal level, and apply them to Puerto Rico, again, as part of a package that combines human capital, that combines uh, fiscal incentives, and that combines uh, easy access and physical location. The government of Puerto Rico, actually, one of the little known secrets about Puerto Rico is that the government of Puerto Rico owns a tremendous amount of physical infrastructure that they actually... For potential investors, they basically give 90% off on physical lease space. Uh, some startups actually are starting to uh, move to Puerto Rico because they find that the internet connection is pretty good. The digital base of the economy is pretty decent. Uh, and they have, they're located within the United States and they have access to all of this real estate for cheap. Uh, not to mention human, ta- human capital and so on and so forth. So at, at, at some level, some of this is already beginning to happen. It hasn't catapulted yet. And maybe this crisis is what, you know, in, in the words of one of Clinton advisors, never let a good crisis go uh, unused. Uh, maybe this crisis is what will give a bolt to those kinds of efforts. So you mentioned some of the difficulties that Puerto Rico uh, businesses wanting to do business in Puerto Rico might encounter, including those high energy costs. Do you see... Um, any advantage in or any path forward for Puerto Rico uh, to work with other U.S. jurisdictions, either companies or or state governments, let's say, to to find solutions to, uh, let's say, it, it would be the equivalent of, of some type of joint venture, right? Do you see any type of avenue there where where Puerto Ricans and and uh, one or more U.S. states can figure out how to work together? Absolutely, uh, and there have been instances where Puerto Rico where Puerto Rican uh, businesses and Puerto Rican politicians and government officials have strategized about this. And, and, and some of these things have actually been put in practice and some of them have stayed only as a matter of on paper and, and even and not even, and, and not just with the United States or with states in the United States, but also with other countries. Let me give you two examples. 
in the 1980s, Puerto Rico developed something called the Twin Plant uh, Initiative with the Dominican Republic. And so what they did is that you you develop a regime where you would attract investment to the region using what at that time were Caribbean-based and initiative funds. Puerto Rico would give a tax incentive to one of these companies to set base in Puerto Rico, and then the tax savings that Puerto Rico that 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 the company would would would, would perceive, Puerto Rico would invest that money. I mean, the, the tax credit that it was giving, Puerto Rico would invest would, would compel a company to invest that money in the generation of more businesses elsewhere. And so Puerto Rico made this 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 arrangement with the Dominican Republic to have certain apparel production happen jointly between Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. That's just one example. Uh, Playtex, for example, a very famous uh, women's apparel uh, company, had plants in both Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. And that was the origin of the uh, export, uh, the free trade zones of the Dominican Republic. Right, these companies were also provided a special tax regime in the Dominican Republic, special treatment uh, both at port and 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 and, and in uh, and labor treatment, and uh, it gave the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico a tremendous export platform. The trade between the two islands uh, trebled over the period of ten to fifteen years, and as I said, it developed into a into the basis of, of the current economic engine of the Dominican Republic. Uh, so ideas like that have happened in the past. In other cases. Uh, later in the 90s, Puerto Rico joined with Louisiana, Hawaii, and Alaska for a proposal to amend uh, the Jones Act to allow for um, non-U.S. vessels to sail uh, between uh, certain or certain exceptions to certain U.S. ports. Uh, the, the proposal was tabled. At the end of the day, Puerto Rico withdrew from the, the discussion. Uh, not entirely sure why that happened, but there was an agreement among these uh, jurisdictions that the costs of, uh, of using U.S. merchant marine vessels for certain goods and under certain circumstances outweighed the benefits and that for specific types of industries that they were seeking to attract, and in the case of Louisiana, for example, in the uh, oil and gas business, uh, it was it, 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 there needed to be some exception to these laws and a coalition was formed to modify them again for the purpose of obtaining the same economic benefit. Uh, so certain things of the sort can be done. Again, most likely when it's punctual, meaning that it's sector specific, policy specific, identify what are the areas that, that, that are joint opportunities and then moving from there. You know, just to follow up, um, on this topic, when when I was living in in China, one of my friends from Puerto Rico was um, had a business that that sought to introduce Puerto Rican coffee to China. Obviously, I don't I don't have to tell Jose Raúl about this, but uh, for for others, uh, coffee is is a, a very important uh, crop grown in Puerto Rico. H historically, has been. Um, but one thing that that was really interesting. Uh, what, when I when I would go to marketing events was how Puerto Rico managed to work together with Hawaii uh, to basically market jointly under this umbrella. I forget the exact term, but it was something along the lines of U.S. coffee or, or something like that. I mean, uh, basically, Hawaii and Puerto Rico would be the the, the main two jurisdictions uh, in the U.S. that 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 grow coffee, there might be another one that I'm, that I'm, that I don't know about. Um, but it's, 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 to me, that's another example of, of the kind of partnerships that could, that could come about. And 
I mean, if, if Hawaii and Puerto Rico, which are literally at opposite ends of the American universe, can, can find, find ways to cooperate, one, one has to imagine that there would be other, other opportunities. Absolutely. And it, it's a funny, funny that you should say this because, you know, actually in my earlier life as a, as a, as a trade representative for Puerto Rico, I, I had to work a lot with coffee producers and, and the coffee business. So I got to, to know a lot of the folks and, and how the business operates in Puerto Rico. That is a very particular uh, example and an interesting example, um, Fred, because the case of coffee, you know, one of the, this, when you mentioned Kona coffee, when you mentioned Hawaiian coffee, you mentioned Kona coffee, which is a brand that the Hawaiians have been able to build. And so one of the hardest struggles for industries like coffee in Puerto Rico has been precisely the question of how do you build a brand? If you think about it, the most successful brand of industrial product coming out of Puerto Rico is rum. And uh, Puerto Rican rum is regarded globally. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, uh, in the United States, uh, about 80% of the rum that it is had in the United States is from Puerto Rico. But even then, there have been certain complications with respect to, to, to the state. And in part, as I, as I said, the case of coffee is very interesting because what we're talking about is a marketing scheme. In the case of rum, the problem has always been that there is a tax exemption that Puerto Rico enjoys over its rum production that other places who produce rum, like Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, do not have because of the fiscal structure of Puerto Rico and a variety of federal laws in this. So the, the, the potential is there for working with other states. But that's what I mean, that it's very, it has to be something that's crafted very carefully with respect to what are the kinds of things that people are targeting. If it's anything related to tax incentives, it gets very thorny and very complicated because of the particularities of Puerto Rico. But in terms of marketing, quality controls, uh, looking at uh, market targeting, uh, looking at cap human capital development, uh, you know, there is already an extremely healthy uh if you want to treat education as a business, there is already a tremendously healthy uh, business in the, in the education field of um, Puerto Rico universities and Puerto Rico educational experts supporting Latino education in the United States and vice versa. Uh, because, again, the ability to produce educational materials in ways that speak more clearly to the communities. And I'm talking here about educational consulting services and things of the sort. This has been going on for many years. Or you even have Latino students from the United States going to Puerto Rico to get a college education that is American certified, uh, but for cheaper cost than it is than in the U.S. Some of those things are already happening, right? We don't know about them because they're not widely known. Again, some of this is starting to become better now, uh, thanks to the efforts of non-governmental organizations, universities themselves, people like yourselves with, through 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 podcasts like this that, that are getting the word out about what kinds of things can be done in Puerto Rico and the opportunity that it really is. So absolutely. I mean, there, there there's a wealth of things that can be done. The question is creativity. Personally, I could I could keep this conversation going for, for a very long time, but um, out of respect for for, for you and, and our audience, I'll I'll start wrapping up, but before before we do that, one of the things that that we want to do as part of this podcast is not only get people thinking about different topics through the programming itself, but also by making recommendations. And I'd like to ask you, Raúl, what are you reading at the moment that you would uh, care to to recommend to our audience? 
I'm reading two things. One of it is fiction, the other is nonfiction. What I'm reading on fiction is a novel by a, a wonderful Colombian author whose name is Santiago Gamboa. His book is called Sega Larga la Noche. It's a thriller that he wrote uh, in 2019, he published in 2019. And it's a, it's a, it's a detective-esque thriller set in post-conflict Colombia and set against the inequalities of, of, of post-conflict Colombia. It's a fascinating read if you want a fast-paced story with a good uh, mystery attached to it that also gives you a tremendous glimpse into what a post-conflict society looks like and the unanswered questions. It's uh, for, for people like me who are who have spent our lives working with Latin America and Latin American issues is a fascinating read. The other thing that I'm reading, uh, which may sound a bit surprising to you and to some of our listeners, is a book by Emmanuel Saez called The Triumph of Injustice, How the Rich Dodge Taxes and How to Make Them Pay. Um, and the reason I'm reading this is because there is there has been a tremendous push in the economics field uh, to ground economic thinking a lot more into the social sciences themselves and questions of inequality, questions of taxes, questions of the role economics has to play in uh, rebalancing societies and meeting uh, societal needs uh, is uh, has actually come to the to the to the fore uh, as a result of the crisis. But this has been going on for quite a while, actually. Uh, Project Syndicate has been publishing fantastically, fantastic columns about, uh, you know, how is this competition between economics and public health to see which one wins in the, the context of this, this crisis. And so Emmanuel Saiz is a very provocative author. He is considered a left-leaning economist. Um, and while he is, uh, well, he's very much a, you know, a well-respected uh, French economist, and his ideas have been very controversial. He is widely read and widely considered one of the most uh, authoritative minds on questions of inequality and fiscal policy. So at a time when we're thinking about the role of fiscal policy and bringing our economy back, it's good to keep in mind what some ideas are being put out there about the underlying basis for our inequality and how to get out of it. So a dose of reality uh, next to my detective S thrillers. I'm definitely going to have to look for that Gamboa book. Um, I love I love that kind of, um, uh, I love a good crime story. Uh, Jonathan, what about you? What are you reading? Uh, recently, I finished a book. It's about five years old. It's called The Accidental Superpower by Peter Zayat. He's a geopoliticist. Uh, what I love about this book, is, and this is my second time through it now, uh, because it grounds me in, in the reality of the current uh, world order. So he takes us back to post-World War II and uh, Bretton Woods Conference, where we brought all of the survivors from all the surviving countries from World War II. And uh, we said, here's what the global order is going to look like. And, uh, and so he uses that as the lens through which to understand why the world is currently falling apart and why we have this trend toward uh, much more nationalism and less globalism. So it's, uh, it's helpful to remind me of a lot who the key players are and what their histories were from World War II onward. Excellent. One of the books that I picked up recently for, well, I'd like to say a second look, but probably a first complete look. I don't think I read it completely the first time around, but it's a book called A Fair Country, Telling Truths About Canada. And it's a book I picked up a few years ago um, during a visit to Canada. Uh, I know that for a lot of internationalists, it, Canada might not necessarily 
um, seem like a particularly interesting country to to study. But for me, it it is uh, precisely because of um, everything that that we do have in common with Canada. But that, in a way, for me, makes the differences more more interesting as well. So this is a book that really dives um, not necessarily into the differences themselves, but rather uh, in a more introspective fashion, looks at what makes Canada uh, a unique country. Uh, the author of the book is John Ralston Soule. As I understand, he's pretty famous in, in Canada, but of course, um, true to the uh, asymmetrical nature of the relationship, um, on this side of the border, we we wouldn't we wouldn't know him. <laughs> um, I certainly didn't when I when I bought the book. But um, it's a good read for anyone who's interested in in Canada. I recommend it, and be on the lookout for us here on this podcast to do something related to Canada. On that note, I'd like to to thank our guest, uh, Jose Raúl. Thank you very much. It's a it's a pleasure to 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 be in touch with you once again and uh, we'll we'll need to have a a call on the on the margins to to to, to continue the the conversation but for now thank you very much for agreeing to to be on oh my pleasure and thank you for having me and uh and those are all good reads and i'm like you i'm a big fan of canada so uh, i certainly will be on the lookout for that book thank you everybody and thank you for for having me We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. We look forward to connecting with you on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and anywhere else you want to find us. Until next week.